Would you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? And uh, if you don't have a Bible with me, let me encourage you to grab one of those under the chairs in front of you. You can find Acts 2 on page 771. Two weeks ago, we kicked off this new sermon series on the book of Acts. It has traditionally been called the Acts of the Apostles, but I suggested to you a couple of weeks ago that a better name would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because of all books in the New Testament, the book of Acts gives us this clearest window into what it means to be filled with the Spirit, what it looks like for the church of Jesus Christ to operate under Spirit power. Well, at the beginning of Acts 2, we looked at last week, the Spirit comes in power during the Jewish harvest festival called Pentecost. And wind and fire are the signs representing the Spirit's coming. When he comes, immediately those who are filled with the Spirit of God start to proclaim the wonders of God. Verse 11 describes that. And that is always the best evidence of a Spirit-filled life. One that bears witness to Jesus, proclaims the good news of Jesus, exalts Jesus as King and Savior, that's the natural consequence of the Holy Spirit's coming. And we said last week, there's no secret formula for access to this divine power. There's just the same ordinary, expected gospel dynamics as beginning a relationship of faith with Jesus. Humility, dependence, trust, recognizing that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have everything that you need. And the phrase that best described last week's message is this again. So long as you are full of yourself, you cannot be full of the Holy Spirit. What happens when one is full of the Holy Spirit? We'll see that in the rest of Acts chapter 2. Listen carefully. These are God's words. I start in verse 14 and read selectively. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we, 2,000 years later, long for this kind of spirit power to be present here at Grace Redeemer Church, to be uh, blowing through this place and this church family like a fresh wind and a fresh fire. We ask that you would do nothing less, Lord, in um, this time. Show Jesus to be exalted over every other so-called ruler. Show him to have the rightful claim to be king. And be pleased to work that same spirit in our hearts to show us that nothing is more true than this reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we're going to look at is the sign of the times. The sign of the times. Um, back in verse 4, the disciples are filled with the Spirit, and they immediately begin to speak in other tongues or languages. This wasn't meaningless babble or a linguistic magic trick. It was part of God fulfilling his ancient promise to Abraham that he made back in Genesis chapter 12 that through Abraham's descendants, all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. Spirit power, we said last week, it didn't result in supernatural oohs and ahs. It simply led to the, the, the beginning of evangelistic preaching. Spirit power led God's people to proclaim God's word. Nothing more, nothing less. We see this right away in Peter's sermon. So the people are wondering what this miracle means, that, that they're hearing the wonders of God in their languages, uh, representing the entire Roman world scattered throughout the Mediterranean. And Peter gets up, represents the apostles, and begins to explain, and immediately he points them to the Old Testament scripture, to the prophet Joel, who ministered at least 500 years before uh, Christ. And um, through the prophet Joel, God declared that in the last days... He would pour out his spirit on all people and they would prophesy. We see that in verse 17 and repeated in verse 18. God's people will speak the truth that God has revealed to us. And here's the cycle that we see in Acts chapter 2, backing up to the Pentecost event. The spirit comes, fills God's people with power. They immediately begin to speak God's word. The crowds don't understand this. Peter gets up, representing the, the disciples, filled with the Spirit, begins to speak God's word from Joel, which describes God's Spirit filling God's people, enabling them to speak God's word, prophesying. Do you, do you see the little cycle that we're in? A, a marvelous, not a vicious cycle, a marvelous cycle of Spirit and word working through God's people. Where do you enter this cycle? It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, it... it, it Scripture is confirming itself. Have you ever stood with your back to a mirror and held up a smaller mirror 
and angled it just such that you could see um, reflections of yourself as far as you can tell. Uh, you know, you, you can't even count how many um, reflections of your, your back, the back of your head standing in the mirror are. Um, parents, that might be a good practical lesson to do when you get home. The scripture authenticates itself. It reflects back on itself. It confirms what is said. Old and new work together, all pointing to the desire, the intended climax, who is Jesus, the risen Savior. All of God's people will know God's truth because the Spirit within us has written the law of God on our hearts. We said that Pentecost... Um, as the Harvest Festival, was also a commemoration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So Moses goes up the, the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, but no longer is the law written on stone tablets. No longer is the law merely passed on through oral tradition from parent to child to grandchild. No longer is uh, the, the law of God even merely written on manuscripts to be shared. The Spirit of God impresses God's revelation upon us. It doesn't mean that we know the Scripture like some memory card is plugged into your brain and you have access to the database. We have to work at this. We have to value it enough to, to chew on it and memorize it and study it and treasure it. But um, it's no longer this removed reality because the Spirit is the presence of Jesus, not just among us as he walked on the earth 30 plus years, but in us as the people of God. It's access to divine power that we've never seen before throughout redemptive history. If Pentecost is a harvest festival, at this particular harvest festival, Acts chapter 2, People uh, would be bringing the first grain of the year, the first fruits. This was their tithe. So you've been waiting all those months, working hard. The first product of your hard work, the fruit, the grain, the crop, is brought to God and offered up as a sacrifice of worship. And um, it is a sign of the coming harvest. There's more to come. God has blessed his people. There's a spiritual dimension here. At Pentecost, 3,000 people come to faith in response to Peter's evangelistic sermon, a harvest, if there ever was one. But 3,000 people are just the first fruits of the harvest that is to come, that is still going on as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. I don't want you to miss something that in verses 17 and 18... Peter quoting the prophet Joel, the spirit is now poured out on all people, even on my servants, God says. That's significant because in the past, the, the spirit was given for particular purposes to kings and prophets and priests to select instruments for select purposes. But here, the Holy Spirit is given to everybody. Note that um, this doesn't occur at, at first among the religious leaders, among the educated, the, the, the people in the know, it, nor did it go to the political elite. It went to common folk. He was poured out on even a bunch of fishermen, one of whom preaches the first evangelistic sermon. That's where we'll go, taking a, a, a look, closer look at, at Peter. Here's what he's saying. 
the outpouring of the Spirit is a sign that the last days are here. How many days? We don't know. But this is the last segment of God working out his salvation plans. It might be another thousand years. It might be tomorrow. But it's the last stage. Nothing further has to be revealed to God's people before Jesus comes back. And Peter's focus is on Jesus' resurrection, which gives him an uncontested claim to the title of Christ. Christ is not part of Jesus' name. It's a title. It's the Greek word for Messiah. Jesus Christ is Jesus Messiah. He is Savior. He is King. He is Lord. All confirmed by his rising from the dead. And I'm going to keep pointing this out throughout the, uh, our series on the book of Acts until you're able to repeat this in your sleep. That kind of Jesus focus is the effect of a spirit-filled life. This is truly Pentecostal preaching. When Peter the fisherman points over and over to the glory of the resurrected Jesus. That's what Pentecostal preaching really is all about. Spirit and resurrection are not two distinct topics that Peter goes from one to the other. The last days are here precisely because all of God's promises have come to fulfillment in Christ. And the the Spirit has been given as a greater gift, as a more intimate present than even Jesus walking the face of the earth. The Spirit within us is greater than the Jesus beside us. He's physically ascended right back to the the, the Father's uh, throne. But he hasn't left us. The director's chair may be empty physically, but spiritually he's provided us with um, divine power through his spirit. All part of the grand plan of God. Nothing by accident. And and we see that grand plan emphasized at what I would say is the heart of Peter's sermon in verses 22 through 24. Um, It's up there if you want to refer to it, but let me just paraphrase it, okay? This is what Peter says. People... God proved to you through miracles that Jesus was legit, but you killed him anyway. But God used humanity's greatest evil to accomplish his greatest good. Verse 23 mentions God's set purpose and foreknowledge. He knew this was going to happen, but he didn't make anybody do anything evil. He used the free will choices of humanity to um, arrest Jesus, to accuse Jesus, to have him put to death. The greatest effort to extinguish the life and ministry of Jesus appeared to succeed at Calvary on the cross on Good Friday. But God pulled off the ultimate judo move to use the aggressive evil tactics of his opponents and turn it around upon them. God used humanity's greatest evil to accomplish his greatest good. Um, Death couldn't keep its hold on him, verse 24. The tomb had to cough up its prisoner because the father raised the son back to life. This eliminates any reason you might have to ever wonder if God could redeem your biggest screw-ups. Because the reality is, you and I sin. Here's the gospel. But God, but God has extended mercy. But God offers a solution. But God can raise the dead. It's all about Jesus here. 
I wish we had time um, to unpack this, but I, I just want to point out a few things that are characteristic of Peter's first sermon. Uh, first of all, it's scripture saturated. He goes right to the Old Testament, Joel, to explain the speaking in many languages. He shows that the risen Jesus as Messiah fulfills Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. It's scripture saturated. Secondly, it's, it's Christ centered. It's Christ focused. Every part of the Bible is about Jesus. Old and New Testament point to him. This is what the spirit does. Spirit filled living, spirit filled preaching, exalt Jesus, not phenomena, not signs and wonders, not supernatural magic tricks. Jesus, his cross, his rising from the dead, nothing more, nothing less. And thirdly, uh, um, a biblical sermon exemplified by the fisherman, Peter, has clear application. It isn't just information for you to say, that was nice. I, that, I learned something today. That's not characteristic of a, an effective biblical sermon for you to learn things. Hopefully you do. But it, a, a, a biblical sermon should call you to action. It should prompt in you, elicit in you a response to the truth that you've heard. I, I want you to know that you have my full permission to hold me to this every week without fail, whatever the topic may be, whatever the scripture passage is, as well as anyone who may be in the Grace Redeemer pulpit, because anything less is not a biblical sermon. If it's not scripture-based, Christ-focused and application-oriented, calling for a response from God's people, you can hold me to that. You can pull me aside afterward and say, "Mm -mm. (laughs) no number two today, Peter. And uh, I'll need to repent and go back to the drawing board. That's what we want to aim at. If we preach like the fisherman Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus will be glorified. God's purposes will be advanced. And our lives will be changed. That leads us lastly to the people's response. I'm going to point us back to a passage that gives us some important uh, context for understanding Acts chapter 2 and, and the title um, that I'm using, Baptism of Spirit and Fire. Um, John the Baptist is called the forerunner of the Messiah because he came before Jesus. He's, he's a distant cousin of Jesus, maybe a second cousin. And he, he's the forerunner because he was preparing the way for the coming of the Savior. Um, preaching out in the wilderness, baptizing people in the Jordan River, and um, if you were around a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, we talked about how Acts, the book of Acts, is really a sequel. In verse 1, the, the author Luke says, In my former book, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and to teach. His former book was the Gospel of Luke. Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach, even though he's absent because he's doing it through his church, us, his people. Well, here's... Um, some part one background on part two. Okay, Luke chapter three, verses 15 through 18. People don't know what to make of John the Baptist. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ, the Messiah. John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. The, the lowest of servant jobs. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. John um, used a metaphor that would have been uh, easily understood by people in the first century, largely agricultural society. Um, when you harvest wheat, the grain seed is surrounded by a husk, kind of like a corn cob, right? Uh, the, the kernels of, of corn, are, are farmers call it grain, because that's what you want. That's nutritious. The first step is to thresh the grain, so the, the wheat crop. It, it, it involves lightly uh, pressing on it or even lightly crushing it, which loosens the grain from the husk, which is called the chaff. The grain is what you want. The chaff is useless. The second step is to um, winnow it. To, uh, so the farmers would set up the threshing floor for the winnowing uh, high up on their property so that they would maximize the chance to uh, get a, a consistent breeze coming through the, the threshing floor, okay, an open, open air barn, if you will. And the farmer would take the winnowing fork, um, in, stab it into the pile and throw it up into the air because the light, useless chaff would have a better chance of blowing with the breeze out of the threshing floor and the heavy grain that you want would fall to the ground. John is using this agricultural metaphor to talk about how Jesus coming and to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire is going to have this polarizing effect to separate the useful component, grain, from the useless, chaff. And the chaff doesn't just get, uh, you know, let out into the wild. It gets collected and burned. It's destroyed. You may have heard me over the months and years quote an old seminary professor. He's in glory now. And he was fond of saying, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. In the baptism of spirit and fire, there are opposite responses to the one baptism that is offered to all people. Those who embrace it by faith in Jesus Christ receive a purifying fire that eliminates the effects of sin. But those who reject it, and it could be active, I don't believe in that, I believe in something else, or it could be mere indifference, I couldn't care less. It's something that doesn't affect your life at all. Those who reject it are, are subject to the fire that consumes the chaff. And so uh, this is how the same Christ-centered biblical sermon can provoke you either to uh, believe and repent or to yawn and treat it like silliness or mere religious superstition that isn't worth your time. By the way, I'm not aiming this anywhere, okay, um, at any church in particular, but sermons that offer five steps to a happy life or three keys to financial freedom or, or whatever it may be, th those kinds of sermons avoid this polarizing effect of spirit, uh, baptism by spirit and fire because they're more palatable to modern minds. There's very little that's offensive. And in fact, in contrast, there's a lot of just good, common sense, wisdom, practical living that could easily fit into 
many worldviews and many world religions. That's not a biblical sermon. That's why I say hold me to these three criteria that we see in the fisherman sermon, Peter. It's got to be scripture saturated. It's got to be Christ focused. It's got to call you and me to a response of change uh, to our lives. Anything less avoids, ignores the biggest problem that afflicts all of humanity universally. How do we deal with sin and the guilt that results from our sin? Pointing to God's offer of salvation, even with metaphors of fire burning up the chaff, is the most loving thing I could do from the pulpit. And it's the most loving thing we could do as a church community with an outward orientation on mission. Otherwise, the end of Luke's gospel, uh, the Luke passage I read, wouldn't make any sense after he warned them against being burned up like the chaff. This is how uh, Luke summarizes. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Encouragement of fire and brimstone. (laughs) That's what Luke's saying. He encouraged them. He preached good news. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. Um, it's dead on accurate what John was doing because isn't it good news when you're informed of a cure to your terminal illness? Even if you're also informed at the same time, the path to wholeness and health is going to involve painful surgery, agonizing chemo, and having to die to your love of fatty foods and sitting on the couch all day. Life. It's life we're talking about. You probably heard about the Metro North um, accident that happened uh, over a week ago. It killed six people. A lady in an SUV got broadsided by a commuter train when her car was right on the tracks and a collision caused an inferno. Um, given the eyewitness accounts, uh, you might have wondered, as I did, reading and, and watching, why she didn't hear the train's approach. Um, ground-shaking approach, let alone the blaring horn, the clanging bells at the grade crossing, maybe even people behind her yelling to get off the tracks. In our sin, each of us is in the way of spiritual disaster. The train of judgment is coming. God is a just God. There's only one appropriate means for a perfectly just... God to deal with sin. Wow. Uh, took me like a nanosecond to wonder what was so funny. And then there it is. You can't plan those kinds of things. Anyone who cares about your life would shout, would do anything they could possibly do to get you off those tracks, right? I, I got to think people behind her were screaming in the seconds before impact. That's exact. Change course. Turn around. Move. That's exactly what the biblical word repent points to. It's a turning away. It's a change of direction. Uh, verse 40 tells us that Peter warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. The fire of the Holy Spirit will completely consume sin. The only question is, will you be holding on to it with all of your stubborn strength and be consumed along with it? Or will you turn away 
run away from it so that when spirit, pure spirit fire consumes sin, you will be at a safe distance and not be affected by the fire. The mercy of the gospel is that the Father sends his Son to endure the fire of the cross on behalf of all of us who trust in him so that we might not have to endure the chaff treatment that John the Baptist is warning against. Last thought. Uh, did you notice um, th- one of the first things Peter says? These men are not drunk. And he's reacting to the last verse from last week's passage. Verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. There, there's something interesting. When we talked about this last June in a mini-series on the Holy Spirit, there's something interesting about how drunkenness and being filled with the Holy Spirit are, are in a similar category. And, and listen to that sermon if you want to unpack that. We don't have time this morning. But later in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul, the apostle, will write this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's some kind of link here. Um, look, when you're drunk, it's because you're filled with alcohol figuratively speaking, and its power leads you to lose control. But when you're filled with the Spirit, His power leads to greater discipline and greater self-control. It's either or. Think about the reality of displacement. I don't know what grade you learned displacement in, maybe fourth or fifth grade, right? Science. Um, The easiest way to understand it is fill your bathtub all the way to the rim and then jump in. And you just learn displacement when you mop up your bathroom floor, right? Your body mass has displaced the water in the tub. You can't fit yourself and a full tub of water at the same time. Um, last week, we talked about humility through dependent prayerfulness as the key to being filled with the Spirit. That's what the apostles were doing in the upper room. They were praying constantly when the Spirit came. This passage emphasizes that repentance is a second key to being filled with a spirit. Here's why. Displacement has something to do with this. If you are committed to sin, if you give it room in your life, you are filling your life, to some extent, with sinful nature, and you are displacing the spirit. There's less room for him to fill you. The only way you can change that is to turn away to repent, to run. And then the filling of the Spirit begins to displace the sinful nature. It's either or. If we fit the Capital One commercial into a biblical context, instead of what's in your wallet, we would ask, what's in your heart? Or better yet, what desires rule your heart? Whatever they are, apart from a love for Jesus and an embrace of His love for you, it, it, it is being full of yourself which prevents you from being full of the Holy Spirit. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're here this morning and you're hearing this fisherman's sermon and uh, my version of the fisherman's sermon from Acts chapter 2 for the first time, know that whatever is ruling your heart is a slave master and it is not a kind one by definition. Turn away from it like 3,000 people did on that birthday of the church here in Acts. Embrace this message 
that Jesus has conquered sin and death and let the spirit of life set you free. That's our greatest prayer. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, we are choosing corruption and decay and death in our sin. Show us, Lord, that it will destroy us. It will eat us from the inside. And open our eyes by your Holy Spirit that we might embrace life. Father, give every person here strength, spirit-filled ears to hear the warning of Scripture, to turn away, to get off the tracks. Lord, to hear it not as judgment but as love and work new life in each person here this morning, Father. Show them Jesus, Jesus risen and Jesus glorified. We pray in his name. Amen.